John and chapter 17. John chapter 17. You'll agree with me that COVID-19 has been quite an experience and navigating it has demanded a lot from all of us. Uh, the Christian church has historians and I have no doubt that if the Lord tarries a hundred years from now, uh, historians will re recall these days and how uh, so much of life was transformed. There's a lot that is positive. Uh, we are now more able to have meetings uh, using virtual means than we ever thought was possible. Prior to COVID, whenever you were organizing a meeting, you were thinking of venue and how to get there and so on. Uh, but now you just send a link and you are able to have your meeting. But one of the areas where we've really wrestled has been the Lord's Supper. I belong to uh, a fraterno, which is virtual, uh, so we never meet physically but it encompasses literally the, the whole globe, uh, America all the way <clears throat> to Asia, uh, Africa, Europe, and so on. And I've never forgotten how when churches began to feel we need the Lord's Supper, discussion came around. How do we have Lord's Supper in COVID times? And just listening to ideas of brothers, pastors, who are trying to be biblical in the midst of something that is totally unprecedented was quite a learning curve. And in the end, we just got all that information and shared it here so that we too could be guided on how we could handle these times. But what it has meant is that the series in John 17 has been fairly truncated because literally you end up with so much space between one event of the Lord's Supper and another. Uh, it's a few months ago now when we peeped at John chapter 17 and looked at Jesus' intercessory prayer uh, where the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 9 of John 17, I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And basically, as we meditated upon this passage of Scripture, we were reminding ourselves of how the Lord Jesus Christ praise even now as he intercedes at the right hand of the father he does so only for the elect only for those that the father gave him in eternity those are the ones he intercedes for i kept saying there all mine are yours and yours are mine and i am glorified in them that's the reason why he made them the subject of his prayer. Today, we are looking at one of the fruits 
one of the major fruits of Jesus' intercessory prayer, and it is the security of the believer, the security of his people. And we notice this from verse 11 all the way down to verse 18, actually, but we will for now limit ourselves to verse 11 up to verse 13. Verse 11 up to verse 13. The Bible says there, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. You cannot miss that this is a kind of sandwich. In other words, at the beginning in verse 11 and at the end in verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ is mindful of the fact that he is going away. He says there in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He says in verse 13, but now I am coming to you. So that's really the main thought that is on his mind. It is that he's going away. And therefore, what happens to this little flock that I am leaving behind? Which is really us. Because, yes, he left those behind, but they were not the only ones. The church has, continuing, has continued galloping over history, and therefore we are included in the church that Jesus Christ was concerned about. And therefore, as we read this passage, let's not think primarily of Peter, James, and John. Let's think primarily about ourselves sitting here living out our Christian lives in the midst of a hostile world. And Jesus is specifically saying that, one, he actually prays for us. We are in his mind as he is at the right hand of the Father. And he is speaking to him concerning our safety and our security. And number two, it is that he wants us on earth to recognize and realize that reality and then this, therefore be joyful in the midst of the trials and temptations of life. That we might be a people that are full of joy and that is what is here. There's an immediate application before we even open this up, and it is this, that what fills the Christian with joy 
is not the fat bank account. It's not even a healthy body. It is not that people are celebrating him or her saying you are a jolly good fellow because it's your birthday and so on. Uh, it's, it's not that. Uh, may I add, knowing that people are getting married this weekend, it's not even weddings. Okay? <laughs> That's a bit of an anticlimactic statement. But it's not even weddings that ultimately fill Christians with joy. May I throw in one more, knowing that we've just gone through presidential elections? It's not even having a new president and therefore having a sense of hope for ourselves that we might have a better tomorrow as a nation. It's not that. Yes, it does give us some temporal happiness in each of these cases. There's no doubt about that. But what fills believers with this joy is precisely what we are going to look at in the next few minutes here. Our safety, our security, our being assured of continuing in the paths of holiness to the very end. Well, let's quickly look then at these four verses, uh, rather three verses together. First of all, we are kept by God in his name in answer to the intercessory prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's put it in plural, the intercessory prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have here is a snippet of it. It's being given something of an idea of his high priestly prayer at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what is he saying? Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, although he was speaking in the world, but as I've said to you before, this high priestly prayer has something of the fragrance of heaven and at the same time the reality of earth. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father. Then comes the request. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Well, Jesus, as we've already mentioned, is conscious of the fact that he is living, and he's also conscious that he is leaving believers in a hostile world, in a world that is not um, like fatal ground for holiness to grow and mature. Rather, it's a world, to borrow another picture of our Lord in the parable of the sower, it is a, a world that is full of thorns and thistles, which easily choke the life, the spiritual life of those who seek to trust in him. Earlier in chapter 15, this is the way he had put it. Chapter 15, and I begin from verse 18. It's a fairly lengthy passage. I don't think I'll read the whole of it. Uh, from verse 18 to chapter 16 and verse 4. But this is what he says. Chapter 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, 
know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, here is the fact, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, which is a fact. They persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. If they kept my word, which they didn't, they will also keep yours. Um, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Notice they will do it to you because they do not know him who sent me. Let me go uh, a little further down. Mm, yeah, verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And that's the hatred that is poured upon believers as well. But the word that is written in the law, their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Chapter 16 and verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's what Jesus has in mind as he is praying for believers. He is conscious of the fact that he is leaving them in a very hostile world, full of hatred. So what is it that he is praying for when he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name? Uh, let me put it this way. He is not praying for physical protection. It is not physical protection that he has in mind. Um, and how do I know it? Well, he's already said it here. Whoever kills you, will think he's offering service to God. So if he is praying for physical protection, then nobody is going to kill the believers because his prayer is answered. But as we know, soon after Jesus left, the disciples began to be murdered. Paul himself was one of the, the chief enemies, and before long, Stephen was murdered, James was murdered, and so on. So it is right across history, believers will be murdered. And you can be sure, even as we are praying for the church in Afghanistan, it's a matter of time we will begin to receive uh, video clips on social media of genuine believers who have said we are not running away, we need to keep the witness of Christ here, and they will be murdered. Very well then, what is he praying for? Something greater than murder. He is praying that they do not compromise and sin against God. He's praying that they do not end up abandoning the Christian faith for fear of their lives. 
He is praying that they might remain true to the living God, even if it means at the price of their own blood. That's what he has in mind here. Now, one of the ways in which it comes out is simply the way in which he refers to, to God, the Father here. Do you know that it's the only place where Jesus refers to the Father as Holy Father? Elsewhere, he refers to him simply as Father. And the closest to this is Righteous Father that he also uh, speaks about. But this aspect of bringing out God's holiness is one that is brought out here. Holy Father, and then he says, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them within the context of who you are. The name represents God's self Revelation. That's what it is. It represents who God is. And so he's really praying, Holy Father, which is what God is, is separate in terms of ethically. He is the moral, spiritual God. And he is saying, keep them in that context, in your name. Earlier on, he had spoken about this name in verse 6 when he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So I've revealed you to them, to these disciples. They know the kind of God you are. They know you. And now he is saying, Lord, help them to remain in that name, in, in that context, in, in, in the midst of, of the characteristics that are true of you. That's really what he is speaking about there. Now, one of those characteristics is obviously his omnipotence, his being all-powerful. And I will be giving you an example or two in a moment in uh, the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And they will begin to see something of God's power, keeping power as being part of who God actually is. Let's quickly go there. Because with that, it would also mean, at least I know the New International Version has squeezed in the phrase, um, the power of which is not in the original, by the way. Uh, so there it reads something like, Holy Father, keep them in the power of your name. And in that sense, it is adding, although there is a sense in which there is the power aspect too. And that's what I want us to see both in the book of Psalms and um, in the book of Proverbs. So Psalm 20 and verse 1 Psalm 20 and verse 1. <clears throat> and then Proverbs um, 18 and verse 10. 
There we read, to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, granted, most of this protection would have been physical. When the psalmists, especially David, was being hunted like a wild animal, he would have been praying for physical protection. And so in that sense, we are not suggesting we must never pray for physical protection. But the point I hope you will ultimately notice is that it's to keep his name, to keep his glory, uh, Proverbs 18, so that he is being honored here on earth. It will soon be plain when we come to the aspect of unity. Um, Proverbs 18 and verse 10 is a more famous verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So there is something about the Lord's name that is, has to do with his power, his power, and his power to protect us. The biggest mistake, though, is when we think that the primary protection is physical protection because we will die. COVID will come, and while we are praying for protection, some of us will die from COVID. The primary protection is that in the midst of a raging pandemic, God's people may remain true to his name and in that sense protected. Because the main thing that the evil one wants is not to kill you physically. What does he really gain by killing you physically? Rather, it is to put so much of a trial on you that you say, ah, it doesn't pay to be righteous. It doesn't pay to be godly. And consequently, you abandon godliness altogether. That is what he wants. And therefore, he brings all kinds of trials upon you in order for you to abandon the Christian faith altogether. Back to our text then. Back to our text. Notice the fruit of uh, being uh, kept. He says there, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, if it's merely protection which is physical, how does death, physical death, prevent the church from being united? How? How? Does it? All that happens is you go from the church militant to the church triumphant, but you're still in the church. But it is when trials cause believers to come unstuck, 
And often what happens is this. They begin to justify their sinful ways. They want to still have some form of religion, but not the religion of the Bible. Some form of Christianity, but not the Christianity that represents the God who is there, the Holy Father. And in the process, the true church suffers cleavage. It ends up going in different directions because some have yielded in the midst of the pressure of persecution in one way or the other. So Jesus is praying for protection so that the church in the midst of its trials, in the midst of the persecution of the world, may still be faithful, and in being faithful, remain united as one. He goes on to speak about how he did it himself when he was on earth. And uh, this is the way he puts it, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So there we have it. Jesus kept the disciples. He lost one, and it was Judas. How did he keep them? Was it by having swords and clubs? Or if we were to speak about today, guns as well? So that if they tried to come and attack the Christian church or his disciples, he would then fight them? Is that what was happening? Not at all. Not even once did Jesus do that. In fact, the one time that these guys came with swords and clubs and so forth, and one of his disciples produced a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus said, stop it, put that away, and he healed that person's ear. So how did he shield them? Remember what we said. He kept them within the context of the name of God, of the revelation of God. He ensured that they still continue to think godly thoughts after God. That's what he did. There was only one person in the midst of all those trials that were coming who came and stuck, and it was Judas. And guess what? He thought something like this. Mm -mm. We are about to lose. This man is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be killed. And once he gets killed, what's in it for us? What is in it? I think it's about time when this ship sinks that I should have something to live off. And so he went to the chief priests and got into a deal with them to hand Jesus over to them. Jesus allowed him to have thoughts that went off at a tangent because 
he was a son of perdition. Otherwise, the name of Jesus, the name of God, part of it is omnipotence. He would have held back the mind of Judas. In fact, he would have first of all regenerated that mind of Judas and then enabled him to continue thinking godly thoughts and in the process, therefore, not end up following the way that he went. It wasn't just Judas who failed Jesus at this point when finally they came to arrest Jesus. If you read the account, the Bible says they all fled away. All of them ran away from Jesus in that moment. But it still says, I have kept them in your name. In other words, in the midst of fear, they still remain faithful to God in terms of how he has revealed himself. They still remain faithful to him in that sense. But let me add this. When Jesus was speaking to, Jude, to Peter, and Peter was saying, hey, me, I'm going to stick my neck out for you, even if everybody runs away from you and so on. Jesus said to him, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. The you there is plural, meaning all of you. Then he says, but I have prayed for you. The you there is singular. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith might not fail. There is the protection. There is the guarding. There is the ensuring that although there will be a temporal denial, a temporal denial, I don't know him. Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. I swear. I don't know this chap, and so on. Although there was that temporal denial, the moment he heard the cock crow, Peter was broken, was broken, that your faith may not fail. In the end, he never abandoned the way in which Judas abandoned. For Judas when everything went wrong, instead of coming back with bitterness of soul in repentance, what did he do? He went and hanged himself. That was the end of the story. He went and hanged himself. So what we have here then is God keeping his people. Even when Jesus was on earth, he was doing exactly the same. Not so much physical, but primarily keeping them walking with him. And with that, I must hurry on to the way in which all this ends. Well, it's halfway through his account concerning keeping us. But what I want is for us to notice why Jesus was saying these things 
in this prayer while he's on earth. Why? What was the benefit of his disciples hearing him praying this prayer? He puts it this way in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Now, notice he's not saying that they might be joyful, but rather that they might have my joy fulfilled in them, that they might experience my joy. That's really what he's saying. In other words, because the Lord Jesus himself knew the promises of God the Father, he knew that although the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are all up in arms against him and they're applying all kinds of pressure, he knew that he was still safe until the hour had come that was provided for by the Father. And even in that hour, it would not be defeat, it would be according to plan. He knew. And because of that, our Savior was one who was in the midst of joy despite the pressure that he was going through. He's one who was experiencing joy. And now all he's saying here is this, that I want them to know what I know. The security and safety of God's children. So that even when all hell breaks loose, there will be a fountain of joy in their soul that the world cannot take away. They will be experiencing my joy. My joy will be fulfilled in them. That's what he's really saying here. In chapter 15, chapter 15 and verse 11, this is the way Jesus puts it. If you remember, this is the passage that deals with uh, the vine and the vine dresser, Jesus being the vine and we being the branches, and he keeps inviting us to abide in him, to abide in him, so that the nourishment, the sap, which is in him, may flow through us to the glory of God. Now listen to verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So as you, you learn these biblical truths, and you are saturated by them, what we refer to today as biblical doctrine. When these truths fill your mind and heart, there is a joy you experience that the world can never take away. Can never take away. It doesn't matter how negative the world might be towards you. How threatening the world might be towards you. In fact, even how murderous the world might be towards you. On the eve of your death, 
with your neck being chopped off, you sing the praises of God. It shocks the world, but it's because of a joy that you know. Friends, that's what we have in this text. It's a, it's a Christianity that is real. It's a Christianity that has roots in heaven. And we are simply enjoying its benefits on earth. That's all. It's a Christianity that defies all odds. The enmity of the world. God's people still remain true to God, to his name, to who he is, and his own power protects us. And therefore, even as we come to the Lord's Supper, which will be handled by our elder, Mr. Stalin, let's remember that this is the real Christianity. The world doesn't see this, does it? It's blind. It just sees four walls and a roof and a name called Baptist Church or something and people coming in and going out. It doesn't know that there is a security, a protection that we have that keeps us faithful despite the outward pressure. And that's what keeps us one as God's people in the midst of a hostile world. Not only one within the church, but one inter-church because of this same protection and safety that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. Amen.